Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Kathy. I'm delighted to have you as my guest this morning on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. It is my, uh, this, this semester, this fall, I am recording on Tuesday. So this is the first conversation of the day. I have a nice, hefty cup of coffee in my hand. <laughs> And uh, and I'm looking forward to this conversation as sort of the warm up. Um, you and I don't know each other. We've been in, we've been introduced by Jennifer at the Gateway School, a mutual friend and colleague. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. You're also going to be uh, participating in our roadshow coming up at the in the later part of October. So I'm excited about that as well. But for today, we're just going to sit down and have a meaningful conversation uh, before we dive into whatever you have on your mind. Kathy, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thank you, Jason. I'm excited to be here. You have quite a following. Um, My name is Kathy Blaney, and I um, am development lead uh, for Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, And I've been doing that for quite some time. I actually met Mike. I am his fundraiser which I know sounds like an oxymoron, but it is not, um, for lots of projects that he has to bring sponsors to. So I've been doing that for quite some time now. 
Yeah. So you're probably, what is that, what is that like? I, I, I understand, I understand the necessity of raising money, the usefulness of that. Um, uh, but wh- what does that, what does that job look like? You've got to know some amazing other, you got, you've got to know some amazing people. Am I right? I, I do. Uh, I know a lot of amazing people, really starting with my boss who I met, uh, in 2002, you know, when I was just 10 years old. Um, and he, um, has really changed philanthropy in a lot of ways, but the number one way he's changed philanthropy and sort of my, uh, life, my career is the idea that in order to make things sustainable, you have to bring in others. You know, it can't be the, the rantings of one billionaire and another billionaire. It's it, for a project to be sustainable. It has to embrace a bigger collective than one or two people. So we get involved in projects with Bloomberg philanthropies between arts, education, environment, public health, government intervention, intervention, and founders projects. Um, so anytime Mike gets involved in a project that he doesn't underwrite, like you and I would underwrite differently, I think. You and I would underwrite our college. Um, when we write a check to our college or something that's personally close, that's Mike, right? He yeah. supports that. The college already is a collective. Johns yeah. Hopkins, the, you know, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School. But when there's other projects like arts and culture specifically, Mike came in and took over the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Folks don't remember this because 50% of the population wasn't even born to post 9-11. Yeah. Um, he came in and you had to build consensus and bring in additional players. Um, he did the same thing with the Performing Arts Center, the Pearlman, which is completing the rebuilding of the site. A similar thing. You have to bring in others. And that's where I come in. And to your point, that's where I get to meet some amazing people who I think, and Mike as well, um, believe that a legacy is more than just the wealth they leave their families. Fascinating. Fascinating. So I can only imagine where our conversation is going to go. Kathy, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea of old opinion. You've already got my curiosity sort of, uh, uh, I'm going, I'm wondering where this is going to go. Um, and like I, like I said during the introduction, uh, you and I have just met. This is our first time in this virtual setting uh, having a conversation. So um, what do you got for us today? Well, you know, I, I've been uh, listening to some of your podcasts and they're all quite interesting. Um, and you, you definitely pick out pearls of wisdom as you do this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes when you're looking for the next big thing, you forget to hang on to the things that you kind of know, but you don't. It's like that muscle that, you know, for that backhand, you're like, I know I have to use the two handed backhand, but maybe I could use the one hand. I mean, gosh, it used to just be the one handed backhand. Right. And. I think embracing the obvious and what I have found in embracing the obvious involves two things, communication and number 
one and two, I don't know which one you want to do first, is the concept that fundraising is not a dirty little secret. Fundraising should encompass your entire organization. If you're going to want to keep employees, have them grow, right? Because you keep them and they grow, they develop stronger and more vast relationships. And what does that do? That inures to the benefit of the organization. But the way to do that is make fundraising part of your onboarding. We've all been at organizations where the person goes through HR and they meet the programming person and they do all of that. And then they're like, oh, please meet our wonderful fundraiser X, Y, and Z. I'm sure your paths will cross. My paths should cross now. My paths should cross when we get there. If fundraising is the thing that we all have in the back of our mind, it is something that is good and it's honest and it's decent and it's important. So when my programming person and this person and that person, they're thinking of ideas from every sort of walk of life of the organization, fundraising can be a part of that. I'm interviewing for an oral history, um, the, the uh, head of a bank. Oh, they have a great story. They were there on 9-11. Did it, think, did it occur to you that maybe that bank may want to support or honor their employees by participating in some fundraising effort? So you can't find out about it afterwards. It has to be part of the whole culture. And the way you do that is through communication. Things shouldn't be a surprise. You shouldn't come to a senior staff meeting and your head curator said, I had this great oral history with, you know, Bill Gates. Well, that, you know, once they're gone, they're gone. You know, they move on to other things. But if you're part of the equation, so maybe it should be next week, we are having a convert oral history with Bill Gates. Oh, that's amazing. When you're done, or maybe as an introduction, you you know, I could come by if it's everything's virtual. I could stop by your office. Let me know how it goes. Because you and I both know you do a podcast, you have a great conversation, you move on to the next thing. And so if you can integrate your fundraising as part of your overall organizational structure and then use communication to create that, you will also have fundraisers who feel part of the process so that when my curator says they're interviewing XYZ, I can say, you know, as a matter of fact, we are doing a lighting program. And, you know, Disney has this great lighting structure and they have a whole department maybe during the course of that you know we could create a conversation where we could talk about disney lights you know and i think it seems so obvious but i would dare say that most organizations don't operate that way they operate i don't i i don't know so kathy about a hundred it's it's interesting how many to, so as I'm listening to you, it's interesting to think about how many times you use the word conversation a number of times, and perhaps 
perhaps the most, one of the most popular podcasts that we had is about 150 episodes back. It was a woman from Virginia Tech. And it, it basically the, the whole theme was around the idea that the conversation is the work, <clears throat> which is a, actually a statement from a, a poet at Cambridge. Um, White is his name. And, and I have to imagine, and, and, and I don't know if it's the organization so much as it's just our fundraising colleagues who, who, who don't understand that if, if we're not having conversations, if we're not figuring out ways, some, some of what I feel like we've accomplished here on the podcast is sort of the indirect sort of messaging that, look, if you're not essentially doing this with other people, you're not getting the job done. And I have to imagine. <clears throat> I have to imagine in between the lines, that's exactly sort of where you're teeing us up to go. If we're not having conversations, meaningful conversations with people that essentially would sit on the other side of the charitable gift exchange, whoever they might be, probably not getting very far. Am I right? <clears throat> I think that's right. And and I think it just has to become part of the culture for right. your fundraising team, as well as your other colleagues, it has to not be like, oh, I should have thought of that. It should be much more ingrained in your daily activities. I love the idea of, I worked in, I lived in Trinidad for a couple of years, which was super fun. Um, I, I played mass, uh, carnival, it's called Play Masquerade. I've learned a lot. And uh, I met the most interesting um, smart, some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Right. And, and they, if you open your eyes to it, you can learn things that my favorite line was someone said to me, I was like, Oh my God, that is so interesting. And he said to me, Kathy, you know what it is sometimes you have to be open to pe to people who see things that you don't, but you should. And if you're always open to it and you're always exploring. And when I was there, I worked at the U.S. Embassy and they would do a country team meeting. And I love the idea because it wasn't an executive meeting. It wasn't this or that. It was the team meeting. It was the country team. You were like, we were, there's a movie called In Country. Mm -hmm. We were in country. Right, and, right. Right? It was great. And what we always did at least once or twice a week during those meetings is we would meet with representatives from either other embassies or cultural organizations or the government. And they would, we would share with them, we're thinking about doing this, not after we did it, but we're thinking about it and they'd be like, well, maybe do this and that. And then a few months into it, I remember there was a meeting and we had some new people come in and I was like, okay, we're going to have this agenda. And I said, oh, we're going to bring in somebody to talk about it. And they were like, oh my God, we wouldn't have thought about that. I wouldn't have thought about it either if I hadn't been like, I'm not a genius. It's, it's now I should have, it's obvious. Um, but I think the more you collaborate with each other, we at Bloomberg philanthropy are very keen on collaboration because it allows us to scale and to make things uh, become obvious. 
If you were to ask Bloomberg Philanthropy's staff, what is one phrase that we all now say in every meeting we have? And the uh, phrase would be, no idea is a bad idea. Because you've been at meetings and people are like, I don't know if this is a good idea. I'm not sure. And we're like, no idea is a bad idea. And that's where you get better ideas. So I think it's being collaborative, being open, communicating with your team. They then feel vital. They then feel appreciated. You hate to go to a meeting and you're like, oh, yeah, I sat there for another 20 minutes. And, you know, you want to create an environment where you look forward to those meetings because you're like, I have this idea. Um, And I think that that is part about embracing the obvious. So, Kathy, there's an author that I read. Um, I've been reading John, John Hagel is his name. He's in the Silicon Valley. He's with one of these sort of, uh, you know, innovative thinker mixed with technology, mixed with just the all the power and privilege that comes with being in the Silicon Valley, for example. And he talks about in, in one of his new books, Hegel talks about this idea of the passion of the explorer. And every time I sort of run into his reference, because you, you just were to use the word explorer as well, as you were talking about the, the conversation with your colleagues in Trinidad, is some of, and, and, the, and what you're describing in many ways is this exploratory. I think that's a word that has, con, has routinely come up here in our conversations about sort of getting, getting a sense of what fundraising really is. Um, is is it that some of us just don't understand that fundraising is at its best exploratory work and that the more we have what Hegel would refer to as the passion of the explorer, um, the better we're going to get at that? Does that make sense? It, it makes complete sense. I mean, you know, it's it's about coming up with, in some ways, a new way of doing what is the obvious? Yeah. But it's also embracing that too and combining them. And I think that, um, you know, you sometimes you've been at meetings, you've been at presentations where people are like, okay, here's the pyramid and we have to get 20 people at this and 10 <laughs> people at this. And it's like, I don't know, my son just started Boston College and he'd be like, it, he over the years has listened to these things. And his big joke is when I have a meeting, he's like, oh, mom, are they going to bring out the pyramid? And I am wow. like, no, Nick, we're going to do something different. And I just think not being afraid to um, look at things differently, not being afraid to really have a conversation with someone in in your office, outside of your office, to to be willing to challenge what you do. You've been at every meeting where it's like, okay, well, why don't we do X? Well, because we've always done it that way and we've gotten to our goal. Well, that's great. You've gotten to your goal because you've always done that. But maybe there's other ways of doing it. Maybe this time, say to someone who you work with, would you do it differently? What would you do? I was at a, we did our first um, indoor, I run the 9-11 Memorial Benefit each year. And yeah. we had to cancel it for two years. And sure. we did the first one. And we always used to like email the tickets out or, and we used to do right. check and everything changed. So we were changing it right. this year. And I remember there was um, 
one of the associates has been with us a long time. And then we lost people, right? People moved, they went to another organization, they did all of that. So we're at a meeting and Jan introduces this new person who joined us. And um, we said, we're talking, you know, this was post-benefit and recently this year. And he said to him, oh, we're going to be talking about the benefit. And he's like, it'll be really interesting. And I think the kid thought it was going to be a young kid, but it was younger. And he thought we would be like, okay, here's the timeline. Here's how you do it, blah, blah, blah. And the first thing I said was, how would you do this differently? This is a benefit. How to the team there, would you do this differently? How can we change this? How can we make this better? So when this um, young man left, Jan said to him that he's just had one other job right before coming to us. And he said, nobody has ever asked that. Nobody has just asked the team who has done the same thing year after year. How would you do it different? And we do that every year. It's again, embracing the obvious. It sounds obvious. But exploring new new ways of doing the same thing should become what everybody does. And I think we get so wrapped up in trying to, you know, have that moonshot that we sometimes miss what we already know so well and so embrace, the talent of our people on our teams, the love of the cause. You don't join a not-for-profit to make a lot of money. And you join because it is a way for you to live your life and feel that you've contributed and you can sustain your family and you can do all of that. But at the end of the day, when you walk out, you want to say, you know what? I was involved in this cause that helped change lives for the better. That's why we do this. So I just think we have to be more open in thinking about how we talk to each other, remembering no idea is a bad idea, and bringing in other views as a normal course of every day. You know, I'm thinking about your comment about your son and the and the the pyramids you know is your i i have a son who's uh, starting you know he he started his first year of college a year ago as well so we it sounds like we're sort of on the same timeline yeah and i think about what my son has experienced if you think about what the first these first two decades of the 20th 21st century sort of have looked like you've made reference to september 11th which was sort of that that earth-shattering sort of experience that a lot of us thought you know, when would something like this of this magnitude ever happen? Um, and, and, and for a lot of us who have never experienced such a thing. And then there's been a number of, you know, sort of paradigm changing sort of ways of seeing and understanding the world. That's the world that your son, that your son and my son and my other children have all been sort of grown up in. And I wonder how much of this exploratory conversational sort of, you know, wh- everything that you're talking about um, it's going to be five years in five years, your son and my son are both going to be on the payroll at some organization and they're going to sort of expect, expect some of this, of their, their employers. And some of them are going to be raising money for charitable organizations. Um, 
some of them are going to be sitting in your seat or mine hosting podcasts, having these types of conversations. Is part of this generational, I guess, is what I'm asking. <clears throat> I think it is a little bit. I also think they got set back a little bit, again, because of COVID. You yeah. Know? And um, the idea I always, um, or I've seen this now recently, I do think there's benefits. We all know that to hybrid uh, working. Sure. There's also benefits to being together. There is an emotional connection. There's a team connection. I always like using the word team because you give your best when you're on a team and you feel like it's a team. And for not for profits, I would suggest they are more team-like than anything else um, because the cause is greater than yourself. Um, and so I do think it's going to be our kids, when they finally go to work, you and I, when we were freshmen in college, we knew what work kind of looked like, right? Yeah. We knew, we're going to go to work, yeah. get up, Monday through Friday, you know, you know, you and I, nor do our children know what work is going to look like. And I do think that it will be different than it is right now. I do think that they will have, in some ways, a better chance to make bolder changes because it's still evolving. And it never dawned on us when we graduated college that if you got a full-time job, it wouldn't be five days a week at a minimum. Yeah. You can't say that. They can't say that. Um, so I do think that also being at home and seeing so much of the for a very long time, right? For two years, seeing so much sadness and and so many people go through so much. I think we have raised a little bit more of a philanthropic-minded student than our generation or, or our, when we went to college, uh, were raised. And, and those that's a silver lining, right? That's a silver lining of what happened. Um, that I think these kids want to make a difference. They're trying to figure that out. Um, but not in nine to five way. Um, and I think we are we are blessed to be in not for profits because part of the team is seeing the end result. And we get to see that so much more in, in some ways than for profits. So I think our kids have maybe greater challenges because the collaborative spirit nature of going to work, I, I don't know what that's going to look like. It's not what it was for most of my work experience. Um, but with that, they can then decide that maybe there are more opportunities than we all sort of thought when we graduated school. So I think it's it's a interesting time, but it could turn out to be a phenomenal time. And I'm just I'm really excited and, and hopeful for them because they get to try it differently. And that's exciting. Yeah, I think I, I remember a conversation I had probably – so the pandemic sort of was an interesting time to be podcasting. We doubled down on the number of conversations we had, and we were able to chronicle, in many ways, a lot of the ways that fundraisers were sort of feeling about this particular experience. But 
your, your comments here a few moments ago sort of conjured up some of those thoughts that I had before. And, and as, as we're reflecting on sort of the way that <clears throat> the way that the pandemic may have sort of completely altered particular components about what we do in the workplace, and then maybe more specifically about how we go about our fundraising efforts. I just, I wonder if, if the, if the world that, you know, the nonprofit world, if the world that your son and my son, our children are going to encounter is going to, going to have experienced another couple of these paradigm shifting experiences where yet another kind of to your point where yet another sort of turn in the way things work. You're, you're exactly right. When we, when you and I graduated college, we assumed we might've had these great grand ideas about what we were going to do post college, but we still thought it was going to fit within the nine to five box. Your son and my son don't feel constrained to that. Um, Doesn't it, isn't the wisdom in that statement that you're making that that nonprofits perhaps have an opportunity to sort of have a read on that 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 maybe the rest of the world isn't ready to have yeah i mean i think that i think that's true i mean i think kids today going out of school um just see things differently and they are not constrained at all by a box. As a matter of fact, it's the box is is the outlier. <laughs> you know, like where's the box? <laughs> right, it's like that's odd. Like ah, uh, um, I don't even see it. I can't even find it anymore. <laughs> they're like, I, I'm sorry, what? Um, so, so that's I think such a great opportunity, and because so much of our work um, is embracing people and what was considered uh, various needs that were unmet. That's what Bloomberg does. You know, we try to combine unmet needs, follow, we use data to, to take unmet needs and find reasonable economic solutions that can help right? Meet them. I think for our kids, the needs are going to be different. The ways to solve it are, those ways are different. And the data is going to be collected differently. And which piece of that they get involved with is the opportunity. Um, And it's kind of exciting for them to see, okay, I care about example. I care about um, mentoring kids. I care about kids graduating from high school. Okay. We're now going to look at data to find out where those numbers, where that is. But that's changed. It used to be who graduated college, uh, who graduated high school, who went to college, who graduated college, where they went. Well, that's changing, right? Because now you look at major companies and you look at a company like Accenture, tracking that data is going to change because you know why? They are now looking at 10 to 15% that they want to hire who are from technical schools, not college. Right. So that statistic of graduating high school, then going graduating college and seeing where that is, well, now you've got different data points. So you've got to sort of bring that in. 
And then the next step is, well, what can we do to embrace them? 20 years ago, I guarantee it wasn't making sure they had a laptop. It wasn't making sure they had a phone. It wasn't making sure they had Wi-Fi because part of what they're going to do to succeed relies on that in sort of a hybrid space. So how do we do that? You know, during uh, COVID, a friend of mine ran the um, Harlem Children's Zone. Yes. She's an amazing woman. She's now deputy mayor in New York City, and she's incredible. And I was like, so, Anne, what was like, you know, because all of these things she had to worry about. And she's like, food, Wi-Fi. Hmm. Getting these kids online and making sure they, you know, food insecurity and, and making sure they had the equipment, the technology. If those two things, now, probably years ago or before COVID, I don't know that if you were to ask that question with anyone, those were the two things they'd put together. Um, but that's measuring, that's a way to help, you know, kids be successful. So. The unmet need has always been there, but how you measure it and then how you help solve it, that'll change. That's brilliant. I mean, I've been spending a lot of time with this writing project that I'm currently working on. This idea that in a hyper, you know, in in an, an increasingly complex world, we need lots of simple rules. So a lot of people who write about complexity also write about simple rules. And the idea that complexity is not this thing that you can write this, you know, complicated to be use a different, to use a contrasting word, complicated sort of owner's manual <clears throat> or tech manual, for example. <clears throat> and, 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 and what, and what your, what your friend at the Harlem Children's Zone is talking about is the idea that they were able to, in a very complex environment where things are sort of just messed up everywhere and you can't fix them like it's a complicated machine, what you have to do is you have to zero in on what are those two things, for example, food and food, food and Wi-Fi. And as long as you can sort of consistently deliver on that, you're pretty good. And, it, you know, it's interesting to even – I'll probably be re- reflecting on that all day – you know, I think about some of the interactions that I've had with in urban education, for example, and I'm very familiar with the children's zone there in, in, in Harlem. And, uh, and that's, that's in many ways for a, for a 21st century world, that's in many ways what the argument oftentimes is going to probably come down to. These kids have got to be fed and they've got to have access, you know? Um, and that's what, and that's what the, uh, that's what the, the pandemic in some ways brought to the forefront. That's kind of fascinating. It's, you know, and that's why, again, I come back to my big idea about embracing the obvious. Yeah. <laughs> it's just sometimes it's what you should see easily, but you don't because you're always out there. And it's really just an incredible opportunity that um, we have in the not-for-profit world. And then they've seen it. I've seen it time and again, where it just, it's right there. You can do it. And being part of the conversation, I think the more our um, organizations bring in folks and communicate, um, it will make 
all of you, all of us, all of you feel a part of the team. And when you're part of the team, like when you gra- when you're on the varsity basketball team and you graduate college, it's like, damn, I miss those games. My daughter was uh, captain of varsity basketball team in, in New York City, and she's about my height. So you can imagine five, four. And so you can imagine what that was. And at the end of the day, when I see any of the moms, she graduated two years ago, I see any of the moms and we talk about school and we're like, oh God, we miss that team. You talk to the kids, we miss that team. It was, and if we can create that atmosphere and it's not about let's have volunteer day, let's have this, let's have a daily day that you feel good and wanted and listened to. And I have to tell you, you're going to want to stay on that team. That's a pretty profound place to wrap up, Kathy. If somebody's listening to our conversation today, um, they can cert- they can certainly join you and I and Jennifer and all of our colleagues at the, uh, at the Gateway School, at the roadshow that's coming up later this month. If you're interested in being at that event uh, in New York City, you're certainly welcome to find more information in the show notes. But Kathy, let's say for, for the folks who can't join us, um, say they want to reach out to you, how would you suggest that they do that? Sure. Uh, they can reach out to me. I'm going to give you uh, uh, an email. Is that how you you? Um... Yes. Just give me a give me a website. Give me a website, and uh, and and I think they can probably find you on uh, LinkedIn as well, right? Can I tell you that would be the best way? It's yeah. just Kathy Blaney, Bloomberg Philanthropies at LinkedIn, and I I check it pretty regularly not not every day you know but um i do check it and and i'm happy to chat yes so we'll put some information uh so that if you're interested in learning more about kathy's work at bloomberg philanthropies uh kathy it has certainly been a pleasure you're always welcome back thank you and thanks for hosting have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.